0: Today's episode is sponsored by MuseArt. MuseArt is a small yarn and fiber company that works closely with women partners in the villages of Mikhalia. MuseArt's mission is to promote Erie Silk, a unique, natural, and sustainable fiber, known to have the world's smallest carbon footprint, to the makers of the world. Check them out at MuseArt.com. That's M-U-E-Z-A-R-T.com. And now here's the show. Welcome to episode 179 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we're talking about building a business in crochet with my guest, Twinkie Chan. Twinkie is a San Francisco-based crochet designer and instructor, known for her colorful, food-themed accessories like cupcake scarves, hamburger mitts, and slushy cup purses. She has two published crochet books and currently has a crochet installation on view at Sweet Tooth Hotel in Dallas, Texas. Twinkie Chan, welcome.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: It's so great to have you on the show. So I've admired your work for many, many years because I think we kind of started on the crafting or online crafting scene around the same time way back. It seems like ages ago now, back in 2005. Yes, it's oh my-
1: like a, gener- a craft generation ago.
0: Oh my gosh, it is like a craft generation. Now I feel really old, but... <laughs> Um, okay, me too. Yeah, it's so crazy. So, okay, so I want to hear kind of your story. So, um, I know you live in the Bay Area, and is that where you grew up?
1: Yes, I live in San Francisco proper right now, and I grew up on the peninsula, which, if you're not familiar with the area, is more suburban and is about maybe like 15 miles south of the city. But I'm definitely a Bay Area gal.
0: Okay. And what did your parents do for work? I know your dad was kind of into computers.
1: Yes. How do you know that?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I do my research.
1: Research. Um, Yeah, he was always a computer guy and tinkering with soldering irons and things like that. So definitely creative in his own way. Um, My mom stayed at home with my brother and I Uh, But she she always had this mantra that we hated when we were younger. And it's if you're going shopping, she would always say, go home and make it. So she was, you know, very DIY. She would upholster furniture and sew clothing. Um, I think she took some painting classes in college. But, you know, she was always encouraging us to make stuff if we could.
0: And was your dad an entrepreneur? I
1: think my mom always wished that he had been, (laughs) but he doesn't really have that spirit. Um, He's a really great, you know, coder and programmer, but I don't think that starting his own business was really like high on his list.
0: Okay. Um, And I know he had like he came he had like a family business, right that he was he decided not to join.
1: Yeah, which was completely unrelated to computers. It was in like manufacturing pots and pans and just an odd little factoid that our family or his family's business is actually based in Nigeria and most of his brothers lived there to work for the the family company and he was like I don't want to be away from my family and I don't want to drag my family to Nigeria so that's why he decided to stay in the states and do his own thing
0: wow did he grow up in Nigeria or
1: (laughs) no that's
0: so interesting
1: no, I, I I don't really know the origin of why they chose, you know, so far away.
0: But. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So he kind of did his own thing and did something different from what his family sort of expected. Totally. Yeah. Okay. And so were were you kind of creative the way that your your parents were?
1: Um. Yeah. I mean, I think I've definitely taken different things from them. Like my dad's work work ethic is incredible. Um, and he always like, he's the guy, like maybe classic Chinese American dad, where like, if you have a math test and you get 97%, like, you know, that's pretty good. But he'll always just be like, well, where's that other 3%. So he's always, you know, encouraging in his own way for you to always be excellent and that you can always do better, even if you're doing really well. Um, and again, yeah, my mom is just really hands on about stuff that she can fix or make. So I definitely got that from her.
0: Okay, and she had a best friend, and her best friend had a daughter who became your best friend.
1: Yes, yeah, <laughs> that is so
0: cool. Um, that's I think, pretty cool. yeah, that's like pretty. I don't know, it's pretty rare. Like, I feel like a lot of times, I know with my own parents' friends, like I was like, your parents' friends are lame. <laughs> you know, like, I didn't really like them that much, you know. So that's I really get neat. that. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I think my first impression of. Her was the same. I mean, like I was eight and she was five and you don't want to be like forced to be friends with someone. But, you know, when your parents are best friends and they see each other all the time and then you see this other child all the time, it's sort of like it becomes family. You know, even if you didn't like it in the beginning, like you just sort of, I don't know, your personalities start merging and gelling and then it sort of magic just sort of happens and you have a best friend.
0: Yeah, that's so nice. And it was through her that you learned how to crochet.
1: Yes, it was her grandmother who taught both of us to crochet, like maybe when I was around 10.
0: Okay. And were you addicted like at first sight or not really?
1: 100%. I was like already really introverted and nerdy. And like, I thought I had just learned like this really cool skill. So I would take my crocheting to school. And you know, just walk around with my yarn and do it while I could. I I thought like, was like the most awesome thing that I could be doing.
0: Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty cool.
1: <laughs> I, can, I can think about it now. and be like, why didn't anyone tell me not to
0: do that? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's kind of an unusual, um, you know, skill for a kid in the 80s to be like crocheting like most people weren't doing that. So sure. yeah, it's pretty neat. So what did you think you wanted to do? Like as a career? What did you think you wanted to do with your with your life?
1: Um, I mean, it definitely changes <laughs> throughout your younger years. When I was applying to colleges, I was super into science, like very into bio and chemistry. And um, at that point, you know, like the human genome project was a big thing. And I was so into genetics and working into biotech. So that's why I applied to schools in. And once I was in college and like selecting my courses, the idea of staying in a lab all day somehow, like I just rejected that idea immediately. I don't know why I never thought about it. Um, and I, I think I just had a rebellion really late because I was like, I want to I want to read beat poetry and take art history classes. So I ended up being an English major with a creative writing emphasis, because at that point I was like, I'm going to write short fiction and it's going to be amazing. Um, and I always yell at my friends who I know now who knew me then. Like, why didn't you make me stay in the sciences? But, you know, things happen as they're supposed to. So, you know, for a while I thought I was going to be a scientist and then I thought I was going to be a writer and ended up kind of being neither of those things.
0: Did so. you take – and you went to Stanford. Did you take any art classes while you were there?
1: I did not take practice of art, but I did take some art history classes.
0: Okay. All right. So, yeah. So um, I'm wondering whether your parents were like, what? Why are you not going to be a scientist that you said you were going to do? Or were they accepting of your choice?
1: I mean, they definitely pushed hard. I mean, they, you know, they very classically wanted a doctor or a lawyer. Um, they really wanted me to go to med school. But in the end, I mean, they're pretty cool. And they know that, you know, they just felt like whatever would make my brother and I happy is the path that we should take. So, I mean, there's like a little bit of pressure, maybe more pressure to get married than to be a scientist. <laughs>
0: Okay. All right. So, um, so you kind of went into the humanities route. And, um, and then when you came out of Stanford, what was your first job? Did you go directly to work in publishing? Or did you have a circuitous route there?
1: Yeah, so in my senior year, I had a class with Tobias Wolf, who was like a rock star at our time. And I was like, so I want to get my MFA. And he was like, I will totally write you a recommendation if you want, but I always recommend for people to take at least a year off after their undergrad before applying to MFA's because, you know, are you really going to write when you have like, what are you going to do with your downtime? Are you really going to be writing? And he's like, if you find that you're still writing, then you can, you would go and get your MFA and you would appreciate it so much more. So I really took that advice to heart (laughs) and realized I, I may not have that, you know, the the killer writer instinct in me, you know, at that point in my life. Um, So I still loved writing, though, and and editing. And I was lucky to find an internship locally at an agency, um, at a literary agency where they wrap writers to publishers. And I started interning there and just stayed there for like nine years, becoming an assistant, uh, working up my way to being my own agent with my own clients.
0: Wow. I did that for a long time. I think that's actually great advice, honestly. I'm very grateful for the two years that I took off between undergraduate and grad school. Um, And I remember the students who were sitting next to me who went straight from undergrad to grad school, and I felt bad for them because I was like, Uh you don't have life experience to bring to bear here, you know? So yeah, yeah, I always felt like that was a good move. Um, Okay, so you spent a bunch of years at this um, literary agency, and um, I'm wondering – what were some of the things you learned during that period of time? Because I always feel like um, there's things people learn from that, you know, kind of job that's not directly in the crafts industry that then um, they bring to bear to their craft industry job later, um, and, and they didn't realize it. So I'm just wondering what you learned during that time that later you were like, oh, that, I really am so glad I had that experience.
1: Oh, yeah, I agree with that 100%. Even if your careers seem unrelated, like you're definitely like planting seeds everywhere for like your future endeavors. Um, I think that working in publishing, I mean, kind of on a, a general scale, it's really about turning art into commerce, which makes it sound very cold. Uh, but I think in, you know, and sometimes can be a very healthy way of looking at your art and your craft because you're a creative person. But if you're going to make it in this world, you have to learn how to sell yourself or your product. And so that is something I definitely kept in mind. We we were focused a lot on branding at the time and not thinking of our authors as just one book, but you know, a body of work, um, you know, a career. So I think that thinking about like what a brand is and what that means is helpful. You learn a lot about marketing. For instance, if your client wants to change genres, they always have to use a pen name because for the branding, if you know Stephen King writes horror, he's not writing romance. And if he were, it'd probably be under a pen name just simply for, for marketing purposes and you know establishing the genre of a book or maybe what kind of crafting you're doing because it has to, you have to put a genre to it because the bookstores need to know when there were more bookstores, they need to know, you know, what section of the bookstore to put the book. So it's kind of learning to be okay with categorizing yourself, branding yourself and promoting yourself in a concise way because, you know, we were all about the elevator pitch or, you know, the one sentence pitch for a client. So you kind of learn the skill, like how to crystallize what something is or what you are. So you can speak about it to other people, like, you know, in an engaging way.
0: And while you were there, you were crafting. I mean, you were working in fiction, but you were also making things.
1: Mostly just toward the end for, you know, like the first seven or eight years or so at the agency. I mean, that was my dream job. I loved it so much. And you know, you work all day in the office and then at night you read a bunch of unsolicited manuscripts. So the free time is really minimal as an agent because you're like, you're like a shark. You have to keep moving or you'll die. <laughs> you have to keep finding the next client. Um, but I do credit my boss at the agency a lot because she was very encouraging. I, she was like, you know, an affluent woman who had everything. So when it came down to the Christmas party or her birthday, like I was really reaching for things that I could give her that she could just really appreciate on a certain level. So I I ended up making her a lot of, I mean, ultimately, they're like terrible novelty items, but just stuff that would make her laugh, you know, like not stuff that, you know, she could just find at any store. Um, And she was always like, you need you need your own store, like you need to sell things. And at that time, I was making like, this, that, and the other, like weird, like painted t-shirts. And I was gluing, she loved cereal. So I was like gluing her favorite cereal to picture frames for, you know, photos of her kids. So there was like, no theme running through anything I was making. So I'm like, thank you, you know, for the encouragement. She was like, I'll totally invest in it. And I'm like, Oh, that's so amazing, but I'm not ready. You know, like things were still percolating. I didn't know who I wanted to be as a crafter. But um, she was just also very awesome in that way.
0: That's awesome. And um, did you kind of discover yarn again and crochet again while you were still there? Yes. So you probably
1: know um, My Paper Crane. Yes. Heidi Kenny. Heidi
0: Kenny. So yes.
1: Really cute, like food themed plush. And I I don't, it might, might have been like Bust Magazine or some defunct but cool gal <laughs> magazine, where there's all this advertising in the back of it, and I I think I was have seen an ad or maybe it was an actual article in a magazine, but like I fell in love with her work immediately, and um, she was also spinning yarn at that time, and uh, I'd never seen this really like like hand-dyed, lumpy, bumpy, super texture yarn, and like it was like instant love, and when I saw this yarn, it looked like food to me, like if it was like a yellow colorway, it looked like scrambled eggs, or the greens just looked really vegetably to me, and I don't know, I just, I really got into collecting all this really fun hand-spun yarn, and just that immediate imagery of food to me kind of grew into, I guess, what I was known for <laughs> at that point in time, which was the food themed
0: scarves so right so you started to use this yarn novelty yarn other kinds of yarn and make these cool scarves and there's one that's like toast and one that's cupcakes um, and did you bring them to the office
1: no at that
0: point I tried to keep it really separate because
1: I didn't want my boss thinking that I was not looking for a new client. Right. So, <laughs> I mean, which is another reason why, I mean, back in that time, like hardly anyone used their real name, you know, because I think we're all still free, afraid of being murdered by a stranger.
0: Oh, yeah. Online know? back then yeah. I was, I was Abby Jane. Yeah. I, right. <laughs> Nobody was like your whole name. Yeah.
1: No. And never your face. Like. <laughs> no, no, no.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> die but um, yeah, but I mean, I had, there was that part of like why you know I I developed you know the Twinkie Chan brand or personality but it was also like I didn't want any of my clients to by chance google my real name and then find that I was doing this other thing so I made a very conscious effort to keep those two parts of my life separate
0: okay and um did you start a website at all for your work Or no, you did. Okay. So you started, that was like the Twinkie Chan website where the work went. The
1: first set, um, which I didn't, and I do not know how to price anything. And I priced these like, you know, hours and hours of handmade scarves at like $40 because I don't know, like I didn't know anything. Like Etsy wasn't a thing. There was no, like not a lot of price comparison for stuff that I was doing that I could find. So everything sold out really quickly. Um, word of mouth on the internet was very kind for some reason somehow before like social media. Um, but yeah, after that, like updating a website was just like, it was too much for my brain to handle. And at that point, all the DIY girls were selling on eBay. So after that first batch of scarves sold out on my website, I just started selling on eBay for quite some
0: time. I want to take a minute now to hear from our sponsor Muse Art. Hello, I'm Randa from
2: Muse Art. And what is Muse Art? Uh, Muse Art is a yarn and fiber company. We are based uh, in the small kind of uh, northeast India that is Meghalaya.
0: And what kind of fibers do you make?
2: We are specializing in uh, arisil. silk. Uh, it's a native uh, fiber of our uh, land and people in Meghalaya.
0: And what kind of crafters use Airy silk?
2: We have uh, weavers, we have uh, crocheters, we have knitters who have been using our yarn and uh, spinners and also indie dyers. What is airy silk? Uh, Hi, uh, my name is Kevin. So uh, airy silk is uh, actually a kind of a silk which is uh, derived from the uh, airy silkworm. And uh, the word airy actually comes from the food Uh, It eats which is castor leaves and the Assamese word era actually derives the word airy silk So hence the word airy silk.
0: And what does it feel like? I'm just curious
2: It's very very soft. It has uh, it's not like any filament silk It's more of a fibrous uh, short fiber silk. So it has a feel and touch of cotton uh, but it, is, it has very good thermal properties where it's warm in win- uh, winters and cool in summers. So what is special about Muse Art? The making of aerosol happens in, at a village level. Everything about aerosol is organic and it's a sustainable fiber. Uh, since the whole process does not involve machineries, everything is handmade and hand-processed. So it's, a, it's one of the most sustainable silk um, in the world. Um, and is there a special
0: offer for our Craft Industry Alliance podcast listeners so they can kind of check out MuseArt products and try some for themselves?
2: For someone who, who's not uh, familiar with aerosol, we have three types of sample card. One is the fiber sample card. One is the color card because we're also specializing in uh, natural dyes. All of our yarns are hand dyed using plant-based dyes, even the moderns and we have a sample card of our yarn and uh, we, we have a special offer uh, they can use the code muzart yarn 20 wonderful for all for all your listeners yeah thank you so much muzart and now back
0: to my conversation with twinkie and um and was it around this time that um kid robot got in touch or is that am i getting this sort of correct it was
1: actually Giant Robot.
0: Oh, sorry. It was Giant yeah. Robot, not Kid Robot. Okay.
1: All right. So, yeah, Giant Robot had their magazine. And, yeah, so I launched my website at about 2005, like like, like autumn 2005, and I think Giant Robot reached out in early 2006, um, which was great, yeah, because that's how I found my business partner, because you saw the article. Uh, so Giant Robot was very kind to
0: me right from the start. Right. So they did like a piece about you and um, that's super cool. And so this licensing agent um, got in touch with you. And so um, what did you think when they reached out?
1: Well, at first I was like, who is this clown? This sounds crazy. Because <laughs> like, he was like, have you thought about a second career? You know, I'm a licensing and branding guy. Um, I think you have something here. And at that point, it was so new. And I was like, I'm an artist. And that sounds like selling out. And the whole thing sounded atrocious to me. So I actually put them off for a while. And, you know, I was still exploring yarn. I was still like, can I make my food shapes with, you know, a really high quality bamboo. And, you know, frankly, the answer was no, because it's too floppy and too soft and has too much drape. So I was still learning all about my materials at that and I just did not feel in a place where I could like think about it as a second career.
0: Right. Okay. So and you also still had a day job. Yes. Right. Yeah, totally. Okay. And so at what point did you decide, well, wait a minute. I mean, so did you start an Etsy shop and start actually selling more online and get more comfortable with your materials and more comfortable with your your branding and your product and then decide, you know, making these things one by one is somewhat limiting. And so reaching out but back out to him made sense?
1: Yeah. Um. Like I, for me, it was like really eBay that was encouraging me and driving, like people would bid you know, like hundreds of dollars for a scarf, for oh, like a hundred dollars for like a heart-shaped brooch. So it was very like, that was very encouraging. I was like, oh, this is possible, people might, cause you don't often know that I didn't make it for other people really to enjoy. I started making weird scarves to like entertain my own self. So I, I've i always been really humble because I always like, people, this is wacky. No one's gonna like it. And so I, I kind of like shy about my work in that way. But, But eBay was sort of telling another story Plus, I could start seeing that, you know, people were copying the designs and selling them for lower prices. And I was just like, you know, in this in this climate, if someone is going to try mass producing these like that, someone should be me. And it was almost like I was playing this chess game and I kind of made a weird decision based on what I thought other people (laughs) might end up doing. So I wanted to be anyone who was thinking about it, you know, and, and get on that the idea of mass producing my work first before anyone else did.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, and sort of seeing that product market fit and then watching people make these copies. Wow. So okay, so you, um, you went through this licensing process, which is really, really interesting with crochet, right? Because I think people don't realize this. And I have a friend who's an amigurumi designer who told me this many years ago, but Crochet actually can't be factory produced. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So if you do want to have a crocheted toy, for example, or scarf or something like that, um, mass produced, it's actually still handmade. Is that right? That is totally correct. Yep. So someone's actually crocheting it. It's just somebody yep. whose labor is valued by some society is less in some way. I mean, basically, that's it.
1: Yes, that. I mean, I mean, there is the the factor of cost of living is right. definitely lower, but for sure, yeah, they're definitely underpaid. Yeah, in most of those situations.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's just that's. I think that people think, oh, it's factory made. It's like, well, hmm. So, uh, right, okay. So you had these product. These products were were. Were mass produced, we could say, and then they were sold in lots of different places. Um, and so, what kind of products were they? They were scarves and accessories and things like that.
1: Yeah, you know, like I fancied myself a crochet designer. I'm not a graphic designer. I didn't really care about making t-shirts. So I was, I was really focused on the scarves and hats and mittens and things like that, like knitwear. Um, but the companies that we would work with were like. That's just seasonal. And to me that was nuts, you know, because I live in San Francisco and it's foggy all the time and (laughs) my scarves aren't super heavy. I never thought of them as like heavy winter wear. To me it was almost like a necklace, you know, just sort of like a fun accessory. But they were like, No, 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 we can we can only sell these during winter and if you wanna have a brand that's gonna survive, you're gonna have to think of this as a lifestyle brand and not just like a crochet wear brand. So We ended up doing, like, T-shirts and, like, wallets and little bags and some hair accessories. I think we were trying to develop some belts that never really went anywhere. Uh, We were just trying to fill the gaps. and Or socks, also. We did a lot of socks. Just trying to make it feel like a a whole lifestyle brand rather than just crochet pieces.
0: Okay. And these were, like, in lots of stores that people know about. Like, Hot Topic and, like, ModCloth, right? And big places like that. Yeah
1: did a an infamous sanrio collab and so we were on sanrio.com for a short amount of time (laughs) where they sold out they sold out really quickly
0: that's super cool yeah it's such an interesting experience to go through that and um yeah and in the end like what did you like about it and what did you decide you didn't really love about it
1: it's definitely i mean it's a lot it's a lot to unpack um it's It's very cool, and I'm glad that I tried it. But certainly, when you get into licensing and manufacturing, it feels like a whole different life than being a crafter. Um, And my team was always very small, so I still always felt like I had to do everything, even though I had like a partner and a licensing agent, and you know, licensees and stuff. Like, I still felt like I was doing so much work, but. I mean, it's a cool feeling to go to your first trade show and someone has set it up for you and you have a sales team and, you know, there's a security guard at night watching your stuff. Like, it feels very fancy (laughs) in the beginning. Um, But like, as we mentioned, I mean, when I first started talking to my business partner, his vision was more like, because he's in LA and he's like, we'll find, you know, some people in LA to hand crochet the stuff and we'll kind of do this on a boutique level. But when you work with the licensee, especially the ones that we were working with, you know, they're used to selling into the bigger stores, you know, like target or Macy's or Nordstrom. So they're thinking much bigger. Mm -hmm. um, And that's why like we had to move the production overseas. That's where their relationships were like your licensee kind of, takes over, right, the whole production process, and you're very separated from it, which I did not like. And um, they need to keep the price point down, you know, like some retailers are like, well, for a scarf, I need to keep my price at $29.99. And and your brain's exploding, because you've been selling handmade for like $300. So, you know, that disparity is very, weird and disconcerting but if you want to do business you know with these bigger stores with these lower retail price points you have to try to like massage things and make it work so the whole like quality control aspect of it also I found a little off-putting like just to be perfectly honest because again I'm so separated from the manufacturing and you know contractually you have these approval times but they were always just like if you want to get to market, we can't make all these changes. And then it was just kind of like, they need to tie things off correctly. And like weave in ends, you know, like as fiber artists, we know we need to weave in those ends. And so like, there were like little technical things that were just blowing my mind and, and making me nuts. So I think if you're that far away from your manufacturing and everything still has to be handmade, it gets very complicated.
0: mm. Gosh, thank you for sharing all of that. I think that's such good insights for people to hear, myself included. And how did you unwind from this? Because – you know, like the machine is running. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the orders and the demands and the next season and you know what I mean? Like all of these people's expectations and you're on the hook for this and this. And if you want to kind of put the brakes on, I feel like, you know, that can feel really hard to do. Um, and so – I'm wondering how you do that. How do you say, actually, I think I'm going to slow this down or even stop it at a certain point?
1: I mean, I wish I were one of those people who are like, yes, and I discovered meditation or yoga. <laughs> or, you know. But I'm just not. Like, uh, frankly, I'm just not. So I really just worked until I burnt myself out, and I don't recommend that. (laughs) You know, when, like, people come to me for business advice, I'm like, I'm going to let you know that I personally feel like I'm the worst business person ever, A, because I just make very impulsive decisions, and B, yeah, like, I don't have that sense of balance. And when I was working with my licensees, and I had to, like, teach myself with the help of a friend, you know, Illustrator, because I kind of knew Photoshop. From editing my own photos for etsy and ebay but like i was not a graphic designer so i don't know the tools for that but they were like you know we need two dozen t-shirt designs by x date and i'm like dudes i don't even know how to even deliver that to you like what's an illustrator file and this whole thing so um i just kind of ran away with everything and tried to teach myself stuff and meet the deadlines. And that's when I really started pulling a lot of all nighters, which I know is not good for you, but that's just the life that I accepted. And I wanted to excel and and succeed. So I didn't know how to put any of the brakes on, um, which is part of my nature too. Like I'm not really good at just being still, but I have always admired other crafters in particular you know, who are able to to kind of end one phase of their craft career and then start something fresh and new and have even like the same or even more success with it than the first phase. And so I always try to keep companies or, or crafters like that in mind where they can really make this pivot you would never expect. And they're doing great. You know, you're like, oh that's really inspiring. You know, you you might feel like you're trying to make your dreams come true. And this is maybe the only the one dream. And I feel like it is hard to know when to let that go. And that was a very difficult decision for me. But ultimately I was like, I'm so burnt out. I still feel like I have to do everything, even though you're like, now you're sharing revenue with like a partner and, you know, licensees. And I was just like, this stinks. And I was, I was just 100% like, I cannot do this anymore. I do not want to deal with it. And yeah. So, I mean, I, I feel like my, my exit was a little bit dramatic, like not on the exterior, like no one would know. But for me on the inside, I was just like, oh, I'm done. <laughs> I need a break.
0: Yeah, totally. And in that process, you wrote a book. You've written two books, and they have such glowing reviews on Amazon. I just want to mention that. Um, but you wrote a book um, of patterns called crochet goodies for fashion foodies, and um, this was in 2010. So sort of right aligning at the same time that all of this um, licensing was kind of taking off at the same um, at the same time. And um, did you have like concerns about putting the patterns? I mean, right? It's sort of a similar. Thing of people copying um, you know and selling the product did that kind of dovetail with concern around putting the patterns out there
1: for sure I had no idea when I started making the scarves that so many people would want the patterns it kind of never really dawned on me and I had a friend because we were still all working on publishing and one of my interns who became my friend started she moved away to New York and she worked for a publisher and she was like, it would be so fun if you and I did a book together. I was like, Oh, it just sort of sounds like you're giving away all your secrets. Like why would you do that? Um, But as I started working more with my business partner, he was like, well, let's kind of release these in conjunction. Like maybe the book could come out kind of around the same time as we launch the licensed goods, you know? So, the people who want to make the scarves have access to the information. And then the people who don't want to crochet will have access to your goods. So I was like, okay, that makes some amount of sense to me. But yeah, like if you, if I, when I talked to my lawyer, she was like, look, if you don't want people to copy you, don't share anything. Uh, because crochet patterns and designs are very difficult to protect. So you really have to let that go. Um, But for me also, this is why I think I'm the worst business person, like the joy that people have when they make a really fun scarf and then they relay that to me or send a photo is so gratifying. And like, I just love that people have so much fun with the designs that I don't know, like I can't help myself, like I have to share because I know that people are waiting for it and um, they enjoy it. So for me, that that has a lot of worth as well.
0: It just means that your business needs to include teaching. I mean, that's what it really <laughs> means, right? It just means your business needs to include sharing instructions, you know, and not keeping them a secret. And that way, when people are able to make them, you get to share in their joy. So that's okay. Like, I think that's great. Lots of people's businesses include that, um, you know. So it's just a signal, I think, to, to say that my business needs to include this, you know. So... So that's good. Um, and um, and I know that you have done some teaching. We're going to just skip ahead a little bit. But um, you started teaching with Creative Bug um, in 2016. And I'm wondering how they found you. Did they just like see your designs on the internet and reach out? Or did you reach out to them?
1: Um, they might, I also started teaching on YouTube with oh. a lot of encouragement for other people. So I, I don't know if they – Saw the YouTube channel or my Etsy shop. But, yeah, they definitely reached out to me. I had no idea who they were. <laughs> really? Reached out. And I thought it was so cool because they were also in San Francisco. Um, so, for me, it was, like, this really neat discovery. But, yeah, I'm not really sure what alerted them to me first. But what I definitely w- had, like, some tutorials on YouTube at that point.
0: Yeah. What were you putting on your YouTube channel? Like, tutorials about how to make different crocheted items?
1: hmm Yeah, okay. they're – really long they're all like an hour long (laughs) so um it's not all real time like sometimes we skip ahead but for the most part they're very thorough crochet tutorials
0: okay all right so um and so you started teaching on create on creative bug you have a lot of classes i think on creative bug and um and i know recently you actually started working there what is your role there now
1: yes um I think my official title is associate content editor, but a lot of what I do is coaching and prepping artists who are coming to film with us. So I help them develop their class ideas, um, get them prepped for like what it's going to be like shooting in the studio. And then I'm with, I'm with them during their shoots uh, to help them if they're either struggling with something to say or to remind them that they wanted to mention something about their class Uh, just keeping them comfortable. So I'm kind of all over the place there because I also do a lot of back-end stuff, like helping set up the actual class pages, and we help, like, quality control the video and to make notes for the editors. So I kind of have my fingers in a lot of different pots over there, which is very cool. I really like it that way.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, so how has that been going for you? Has it been interesting to be working with different artists on these kinds of um, classes? It's
1: so fun. I mean, I know... Everyone's different, but like so far, everyone that I've worked with and coached has become like my new best friend because you know every, they're they're creative and they're artists, and you learn things from them, and they're just neat people to get to know.
0: Yeah, that's super cool. Well, I'm well, congratulations on your new job. there. How Thank long you. How, did you start working there before the pandemic, or?
1: Yes, I had been working as the social media manager for this small clothing and gift company. And um, I think like, it was about a year ago, like in October that I left that job to freelance for Creative Bug. And then I just worked through the pandemic with them and then um, got hired full time like in July. Okay, it's been a couple
0: months. Okay, that's super cool. Um, yeah. So, um, so did you take that social media management job because you really did need a day job in order to sort of keep everything afloat with, um, with this sort of Twinkie Chan brand and you know needing some structure, or, um, or why take the social media job?
1: I mean, a bunch of different factors. It was really at a point where I was really tired of pursuing the licensed brand and I felt like I needed a break. Um, Initially, when I very first started this whole thing, I just never imagined that I could survive on patterns and handmade just because me cranking out scarves, you know, like I just didn't want to burn out crocheting the same thing over and over again and I did have crochet helpers but then you spend a lot of time managing them as well so for me for me personally the business model of having a handmade Etsy shop was not going to keep me alive my goal was always to lean on the mass production and other various deals as a livelihood so when I wanted to pull the plug on the licensing I was like okay if you want to break from crafting and licensing you need to do something else Plus, honestly, my dog at that point was very ill and I had maxed out my credit card. So I was like, I, I need to change something here. Life is telling me that you need to take a turn. So that's why I started um, looking for a job and the social media sort of seemed to fit just sort of based on what I'd been doing uh, for the Twinkie Chan brand. I guess it looked like it was something I knew how to do. So yeah. I wound up at that job.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes people who are in the craft industry and have built a brand don't necessarily realize that they can parlay those skills into a day job at um, somebody else's business. But you actually yeah. do have a ton of skills.
1: Absolutely. You have so many skills. It's almost like you need... I needed like a couple different resumes depending on what job I was applying for because you can really you know craft it and angle it depending on you know what the job is because running your own business you've done so many things you have way more experience than you think that you do
0: yeah so cool. I mean, I really – I think we underestimate ourselves and just how organized you have to stay and how well you have to market yourself. And I mean, you wear every hat, so you could market all those hats. <laughs> a, yeah. yeah. Yeah, when you're trying to get a job. That's super cool. And you've done a lot of different brand collaborations as well. Like you um, – I love the tree that you were working on. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's so cool. Um, the Audrey 2 tree. So my daughter um, was in Little Shop of Horrors, and she <sighs> – played um she played audrey too so that was her role (laughs) and so i sent her she's at boarding school right now but i sent her a picture of it and she was just i mean over the moon for it it's amazing so that's a collaboration that you're doing with treatopia um and you've done quite a few of these different um brand collaborations and i just wondered like sort of how those come about and how you feel about doing those
1: I think they're super fun. Like I've never been proactive about reaching out to brands for collaborations. So they just sort of, especially at this point, I'm not concentrating so much on my own crafting since I work full time. But when they come through the email, like you can't say no, like they're so fun.
0: <laughs> yeah. So um, So like this Topia one, what is like the sort of obligation I guess you have for them? They send you a tree and you decorate it and is it like oh okay you have to you know do this every other month or something like that is it like a year-long contract or do you mind sharing like some of like what is it required because i think people are sort of curious like if i were to do something like this what would i actually need to do
1: for me they're usually one-offs okay um, and even though i've worked with tree several times it's not like I'm not like an ambassador or like a rep for them or anything. It's just these individual influencer campaigns that they do. And, you know, always do your best with all your jobs because it's really awesome when they rehire you for things. So uh, that's why it kind of looks like I work with them regularly, but it's really just campaign to campaign depending on their needs. And I've said no a lot to Treetopia. I love them in case they're listening, but it's like, I don't know what to do with all these trees. <laughs> like I have so many Treetopia trees right now
0: right okay right and um yeah you've worked with other brands too i feel like um i saw one that was maybe with mcdonald's
1: yeah yeah that was just a fun quick one when they were promoting i guess mick delivery that you could order mcdonald's with uber eats and one of the marketing people is here in san francisco and so she's invited me to a couple like on-site mcdonald's events which are funny to me and um yeah so she's and I sent a bunch of stuff, uh, like a bunch of gifts that po- people could possibly win if they ordered McDonald's from Uber And I just thought that it was a really fun, random project to work on.
0: Yeah. And you made the cutest fries. They're like individual little fries. With-
1: <laughs> They're so yeah, cute. Sure. French fry purse. Yeah. You know, when everyone needs one.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. 100% agree. Those are super cute. Um, and then you also collaborated with the, like, the Craft Yarn Council, um, which has been really fun. And you've done a couple of different things with them. You made, like, um, they did, like, a reducing stress kind of campaign. And you worked yeah. with, with them on that one.
1: Yeah. Um, actually, when I had my licensing agent... Um, we were, you know, trying to make various deals happen and they were planting some seeds. So I was what they called a guest blogger for michaels.com. But basically what I was doing was writing patterns for them, like a pattern a month for a year. And because they were hoping to, you know, form a good relationship and maybe to get product in Michael's It never got that far. Uh, but through my working with Michaels and different brands and companies, Michaels worked with, that's how I think the Craft Yarn Council and I started to know who each other were. And, yeah, when they reached out for the um, Stitch Away stress campaign the first time, like, that was super fun because, um, I don't know, it, for people to to provide, like, an easy pattern, like a little 3D, like, lemon squishy toy, you can see – so many people posting their lemons and I think a year or two after that initial campaign they had a lot of volunteers make like so many lemons and they were passing them out for free on tax day like in New York to relieve people's stress about taxes <laughs> super cute and like they got on I don't know some morning talk show like I'm gonna misremember it's so like good morning America or something like that so It was just really neat to see this little lemon, like this one little lemon kind of grow into this whole movement.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. And it really promotes people knitting and crocheting and using that as a way to relieve stress, which it totally is. So I really admire their work there. And um, I honestly feel like in sewing and quilting, we could use a similar effort because, yeah, yeah, that's just a great um, a great thing to do. So, um, and then they've recently been the ones to organize this incredible installation. And you've done some different kinds of shows and installations, but this one is really beautiful and ambitious. There's great video that they've also taken, um, of the Sweet Tooth Hotel in Dallas. And I feel like a little devastated that the timing of the opening was so sad that it <laughs> coincided with everything shutting down in the world. Um, because it's so amazing and it really. Needs Needs to be seen in person. So I'm hoping that, you know, that will be a little, I mean, I think it's like limited, but I'm hoping it'll be more possible and it will stay open so people can really get in there. But um, you made this incredible bakery. Uh, I mean, it's so, the, the pictures are just so, so cool. So talk a little bit about sort of how you approach something like this. Like they gave you, I guess, like a room. And to me, yeah. I would walk in there and be like so intimidated to have to fill this entire space with my work. Um, I don't know if you felt that way at first or if you were immediately like, I know exactly what I'm going to do here.
1: (laughs) So. Uh, No, it was totally overwhelming, especially because I was still working full time at my social media job. And I was kind of flip-flopping for a while, but it's such a cool opportunity. Like, again, it was really hard to say no to, so I said yes. Um, And a lot of artists at this point had already signed on for the project and had already chosen their rooms or were assigned their rooms because this gallery had, like, you know, maybe, like, six or seven different zones for, for each artist to take over. And I think it was down to, like, a 20 by 20 room versus a hallway, which ended up being a pretty (laughs) big hallway. But to me, the hallway seemed more digestible than like a 20 by 20 room. Um, But I actually had to develop several proposals for for them. I think just due to a miscommunication, I thought that they had given me a certain theme. And so when I would give them a proposal, they'd be like, "Eh, let's make some changes. And I would send another one. They're like, why do you keep doing this theme? I'm like, because you told me to. And they were like, no, 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 no. I think you misheard so, like, I had to completely reconceive of what I was doing um, just because I maybe it wasn't explained correctly or I wasn't paying attention. But, yeah, so a lot of the artists that work in there, like, that were in there, like, London Kay. Yeah. Uh, made by London. You know, she is an installation artist. Yes. Her work is very large scale. Right. And so I was always, I kept imagining for me to fill a space, I need to work on a large scale as well, which is not my usual. Like, I make accessories and I make tiny toys. So a lot of my first proposals were also about working big. And the problem is I'm also not used to shipping large stuff like that. So if I'm in San Francisco and the galleries in Dallas, like my brain just, am I making structures? Am I shipping structures? Like, am I just making like big covers and cozies for things so that I can just ship the crochet and just throw it over a form? Like it just really threw me for a loop because I'm not used to crocheting in that way. And I had this realization to just do what you do. You can work small, but you're just going to need a lot of repetition of small things to fill a space. So at that point, then I was really scrambling to find more crochet helpers because there was no way I would have time to crochet everything in there myself.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think there's two things there. One is um, they've chosen you because of what you do. And Mm -hmm. so it's so funny how we sometimes get intimidated and look at all the other people who've been chosen and think you have to do what they're doing because that's why they've picked those people. <laughs> it's like, yeah, right. but they picked you because of what you do. So just do what you do and do it really well. And then it'll be, it'll shine, you know? Um, and it's, I, I, I know that feeling so well of trying to do something different um, for some reason. <laughs> it's like, no, that's not what they want. Um, number one. And number two is the, um, your willingness, and it sounds like you've had this all along, um, but to hire help, to get crochet helpers and, um, and just not to feel like I have to crochet like 25 baguettes. Like, right. Right. and that's totally. just one, that's just one thing. Like, that's just one little tiny portion of this whole display. Like, that's impossible, you know? Um, so enlisting that help and, and crediting those people, but not feeling like that's somehow cheating.
1: Right. Totally not. I mean, for me, I think I made note of it somewhere either on my blog or the Craft Room Council's blog. Like, you know, it's my name on the installation, but it's like a movie. You know, you might know the two main actors in it, but the credits in the movie are so long. There's so many people who are part of a large production. And for me, this installation was no different. And I really wanted to acknowledge all that help, like, in as many spots as I can, because there's no way that thing could have been made without help.
0: Yeah. And that's amazing. And I think um, I think it's great. And I think it's something that we could all also benefit from. Like, it's okay to ask for help. Um, yeah, totally. So, um, so even if we can't make it to Dallas, there is, like I said, lots of really good videos. So people can come and check that out. And Twinkie, I have to ask you, is Twinkie your real name? I hope it's okay to ask you that.
1: It's totally, no, it is not my real name. <laughs> Remember, because I was trying to keep my real life and my craft life, which ended up being a real life separate when I was working in publishing. So I needed I really tried to think of a completely separate name.
0: Okay, so that's like a brand name for you. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, I think it fits your brand a 100%. Because obviously, your brand is all about cute food. So um, that's awesome. Okay, cool. Well, I'm glad I asked because I was sort of like, maybe I shouldn't ask that question. But, um, but I was so curious. So okay, I'm glad I asked. And I'm glad it was okay to Hi. ask.
1: I had a potential partner who wanted me to legally change my name for branding purposes. And I was like, my parents would kill me. I'm never doing that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's funny. Um, well, anyway, like I said, that is, and it's kind of funny, too, that it's like a relic of the old sort of craft internet, too, um, yes. of like not wanting to use your real name. Um, all right, great. Well, I want to make sure we get to your recommendations, because you have three really good ones. And one of them we kind of referenced already, which is um, the paper mache and sort of trying out some different crafting that's outside of crochet. Um and the paper mache comes in with um the aju tree, which is I believe made out of those Aju2 um plants are made out of paper mache. Um but you've been doing some other things too like knitting and friendship bracelets.
1: Yes. Um my working with creative bug uh, has been really cool because you're kind of forced to look at a lot of different crafts all the time um and last week I went in the studio to shoot a friendship bracelet class so prepping for these classes is also a fun break from crocheting and I'm watching a lot of painting and coaching a lot of painting and you're like hey maybe I should start painting so it's been really fun actually and very refreshing to take a break from the normal and, and just try something a little different
0: they are so creative I mean obviously at creative bug, but like I had yeah. Qu- uh, Courtney Sarudi on the podcast um a few episodes ago and after I talked to her, I painted and like drew my sketchbook for like four nights in a row. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And then I totally like stopped doing it. But it was like very inspiring to me. And I imagine that if I actually worked there, I would totally be like so much more like multimedia. So um it's just a very inspiring environment, even just to talk to them like over, you know, the internet. So <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, it's it's a great environment. Everyone who just works there is really cool and creative. So
0: yeah, I really like it. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, okay, and then you um, are drinking something called Dandy Blend. I honestly yeah. never heard of this before. <laughs> what is this?
1: So oh, I should have brought the bag over with me. Um, I I was influenced by an influencer I follow. She's a fashion blogger. And she had this Instagram story about Dandy Blend, and it's caffeine-free. It's not coffee-based at all. And I think there's some dandelion and some chicory and some other things in there. But to me, it tastes like coffee. And if you're a coffee connoisseur, you'll probably turn your nose up at it. But if, like, if Because for me right now, ca- the, the caffeine in coffee or the acidity in coffee is just makes my stomach feel really funky. So the Dandy Blend is fun if you just like that flavor of coffee in the morning. Um, Because, yeah, it's all herbal. And I don't know. It's my new thing. I kind of probably sound like a crazy evangelist, but I'm really loving it right now.
0: (laughs) That's great. And I also love that you were influenced by an influencer.
1: (laughs) I am. I'm totally
0: the target for that I buy from Instagram ads I'm the worst I buy from Instagram all the time <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm seriously and and I will t- I do I've bought so many different things just from different people and also from ads too I totally agree with you um yeah it's very like <laughs> targeted toward you know toward exactly who you are so weirdly yep. I know you know <laughs> um, it's dangerous but anyway okay and then um you're also enjoying CBD body cream for your um painful elbow from crocheting
1: yes I unfortunately am now in the phase of my life where things hurt because I crochet too Aww. much um and I don't want to do any permanent damage and everyone is saying to get a steroid shot but I'm not ready to do that that sounds scary so uh, I have a friend who sells CBD, and she recommended um, a cream to me, and it's been helping quite a bit.
0: Really? I have never used any CBD products. Um, So interesting. That's good to know.
1: I mean, it's expensive, but if you, like, have a friend who wants to, like, Hook you up. Loan you a couple slurs.
0: yeah. <laughs> like, give it a try. <laughs> Good to know. Well, Twinkie Chan, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you.
1: That was so much fun. Thank you so much.
0: And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was sponsored by MuseArt. MuseArt is a small yarn and fiber company that works closely with women partners in the villages of Meghalia. MuseArt's mission is to promote Erie Silk, a unique, natural, and sustainable fiber, known to have the world's smallest carbon footprint to the makers of the world. Check them out at Museart.com. That's M-U-E-Z-A-R-T.com. Thank you so much, MuseArt.